Hello friends, my name is Enzo and the party is Two Woke Titos. My guest for today is one of my favorite co-workers. I actually don't work too much with him but I pester him a lot just because. Richard Bon Moya is the National Technology Officer at Microsoft Philippines. Prior that, he was a civil servant with the Department of Budget Management. Prior that, he was an entrepreneur many times over. In the middle of all of that, he was a lecturer all-around great guy, fantastic man, such a sweetheart. This podcast was envisioned to be something else altogether, but as I was asking him questions, legitimately, uh, things I learned for the first time, it ended up focusing more on how this government sets its national budget and all of the nuances that go into that. Surprise, surprise, spoiler alert, how we vote as citizens has a lot to do with how this national budget is set. I'll let Tito Bon take it away. I am enthusiastic about the conversation. I'm excited to drop more of these. He's agreed to come back, so woo! Ladies and gentlemen, part one with the great and powerful Bon Moya. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Richard Bon Moya. If you looked him up on LinkedIn or on Google, you'll probably see different things. Uh, he's an entrepreneur, he's a lecturer, he was a formerly a civil servant, and now he's the National Technology Officer at Microsoft. Um, Tito Bon, let, let's, let's, you've done a lot of things in a long and storied career. Tell us about your current role. No, you, you are the National Tech Officer of Microsoft. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Uh, what does that mean? Uh, okay, well, uh, it, it's, it's a bit of a... Uh, uh, the deliberately ambiguous role, but ultimately, it's it's the, the role is a technology advocate. So internally, uh, you have to keep reminding the organization that we have to be uh, not myopic about the technology that we use uh, to allow us to remain competitive, not just in the short term but in the long term. Outside, of course, you have to espouse certain technologies and the use of those technologies, the ethical use of this, those technologies. We have to espouse that so that the other the, the environment will will both appreciate the technology and start thinking of how that technology can be used for good. So that's the first aspect of the job. Uh, the other aspect is that we're really change agents, both internal and external. So uh, internally, we want to make sure that uh, we don't want to remain uh, static, stagnant. So we continue to challenge both the suppositions of the organization, the ways we do work. Uh, not to be uh, uh, contrarian, but really to just make sure that we're always exploring the best possible path. Uh, and then outside, of course, and this is the part I like the most, uh, which is really a continuation of what I used to do in the public service, uh, to, to start uh, because the, we can't be static and the world is just changing dramatically uh, outside. And we want to ensure that... Uh, uh, we continue to change for the better, uh, not for the for the worse, and also to challenge outside the processes and procedures. So, so that's what we. Well, that's what I do. It sounds like a combination of many, many things. Is there any current engagement you have as the National Technology Officer, which you can discuss on air? Uh, well, one is the National ID. Uh, for, of course, when we started this one. The underlying philosophy there is that uh, uh, we have so many IDs, uh, government spends so much money on the IDs, uh, and therefore we we all benefit from just having one ID, and hence the start of the discussion on the national ID. But in truth, there's really a much much broader aspect. This is really a 
uh, an authentication, an attestation by government, and we should not limit it to the physical. I think we should expand it broadly to also include uh, digital IDs, digital attestation that you are who you are. And that's really important uh, because in, in the now changing world, or more and more, we need to ensure that the people who purport themselves to be uh, just to avail of government function and also to avail of other societal functions like opening bank accounts, buying stuff online, you know. Uh, so there has to be a, co a component on the attestation on the digital side. So you have to engage PSA to make sure that these uh, concepts are also known, not just uh, focused on the ID. So the national ID system Physical ID, in, I mean. the national ID system is not a new initiative, right? It, it's floated around as a priority for some time now, but is this something yep. which I guess I guess the question is is this something that's going to do away with passport, driver's license, voter ID like in, in places like Estonia, right? There's like one digital marker. Is that the vision or or am I being reductive here? Uh, no, uh, it, it shouldn't be. Uh, ultimately, if it's credible, you really just need one credible uh, gov attestation. And by the government, by its function, has that formal authority to attest. That is why in many countries, what they used to uh, uh, do is issue passports and issue driver's license. Right. It's an attestation that they are who they are. So, yes, it's important. Yes, ideally, we should only have one. Uh, and uh, it's really just more efficient. Unfortunately, when you implement it, some institutions are uh, fiscally autonomous. That means that certain parts of the government cannot impose on them. So, for example, if the court does not want to recognize the legal ID for legal purposes, that's another matter. They are well within that. And, and then you break that down, even among the executive, for example, if the, if the say, DFA insists on a passport, and the LTO insists on a driver's license, uh, I guess to some degree they're well within the right to do so. But uh, the law actually says we should unify. And the reason is really efficiency. Now, again, you, you answer a question, then I have like five follow-ups in my brain. But let, let's start here. What I'm picking at is that there is a national engagement to unify the ID. Mm -hmm. But you also said several disparate government bodies can mandate or disqualify based on what they see. I guess my question here is number one, isn't there, doesn't the national supersede what the individual agencies want? And number two, if the agencies insist on their own um, platform, if you will, or on their own standard, then what's the point of having a national ID to begin with? Ah, okay. Good questions. And there are two answers. The first one, there is no one national entity. Uh, contrary to our notion that there's only the executive, I think it's in practice we don't feel it. But in truth, uh, there are, of course, the three major ones Congress, the lawmaking group, the mm. legislative group, uh, upper, uh, they call it the Senate and the House of Representatives, ironically called HOR. Uh, the second <laughs> one is the executive department. Uh, and then the third one is the uh, judiciary, Supreme Court, and all the courts. And then there, in addition to that, there are constitutionally mandated groups like the Office of the Ombudsman, the Commission on Election, the Civil Service Commission, uh, and the Commission on Audit. These are not uh, beholden in any way to the president. Although the president appoints uh, the leaders, they are to function separately. So in truth, for example, uh, the executive says all people will use one ID and Comelec decides to say, no, you will use our Comelec ID. That, that's well within the checks and balances of the government. Ooh. Is it efficient? Probably not. 
they have to build in some of the inefficiencies to ensure that there is no one concentration of the powers of the state. I think that's the trade-off. Yeah. Now, if you look at it, and obviously you, you represent a tech uh, platform, a tech services company, how is the go what is the government's relationship with technology when they confront a very nuanced uh, scenario such as the national ID system? Do you feel like uh -huh. people understand? Do you feel like, uh, ah, eh, you know what I mean, na, na may, may, may hesitation? W what is that relationship between government and technology like? Aha. Uh -huh. Well, to, let me start obliquely. Uh, I think first, uh, uh, the true power of government is really just moral suasion. Of course, there are laws, but in truth, the most powerful uh, power of the state is really just moral suasion. So if, for example, you have a credible moral government who will say, let us use this technology uh, to do that, people will obey it, not because, because it takes a while to make a law. So that's the truth, because it's correct and morally correct to pursue and societally correct. So, so that's the first one. On the question on technology, te te government is a user of technology. In fact, it's one of the biggest consumers, one of the biggest employers, one of the biggest consumers, and more importantly, offers the most diverse services. So that being said, it should benefit the most from using technology in the way it uh, addresses the, uh, its constituency. So it's both uh, a, a great user and therefore can in, can leverage its uh, public funds to demand certain things from technology companies. On the other hand, also, like in the US, for example, they are the primary uh, instigators of R&D and technology. For example, the internet. Uh, the internet that we're currently using now commercially, globally, that's now uh, changing uh, our lives, was a byproduct of uh, military research Correct. on how to do pervasiveness in communication Correct. during time the Cold War. So they, they can do both and they can affect both. And of course, there's, there, they also have to act. The third leg is that you know technology is uh, agnostic. It can be used for great good and it can be used for great evil. So part of the component of government is to come in as the uh, ethical, moral compass on the use of not just technology, all other products and services. To those who are catching this midstream, this is exactly my relationship with Tito Bon. I bump it in the pantry. Oh, Tito, my tanong ako. And then 15 minutes later, we're, we're going deep on something else. But this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you. Let, let's let this conversation bleed into something else, right? So we're talking about right. the government and you're talking about everything from the Comelec to the COA. Let's bleed into one of your past life and your past role, something called the Department of Budget Management. Could you explain yep. to the layperson what the DBM is? Ah, okay. Um, the, D, uh, the DBM currently, of course, now it's a department. Prior to that, was under the office of the president. So essentially, the DBM crafts the national expenditure program, uh, prioritizes it, and then uh, allocates money, and then drafts the bill, and then sends the bill to Congress. In truth, people think that it's DBM that uh, sets the priority. But uh, in reality and by design, it's really the representatives of the people, and that is Congress. So ultimately, how we spend our money is ultimately determined by the people, by who they elect as congressmen. However, that job cannot, you know, Congress has many other things. So that administrative job of getting all the expenditure, lining them up, putting that in categories, uh, aligning it with the uh, priorities of the people and the priorities of the president, 
uh, and then they send it to Congress, and then Congress deliberates on it. So that's what DBM does. After which, so that's budget prep. And then there's also budget execution. The, what DBM does is to ensure that what was approved by Congress as law, you know, the budget is law. So if you don't follow the budget, you're you're violating the law, and mm -hmm. that's you get into trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, the 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 second one is budget execution. Uh, this is to make sure that what was approved by Congress was is given to them. Sometimes they give it as tranches, and sometimes these are levers that they use both fiscally to ensure that we don't, if we don't have money, we don't release the funds, and therefore we don't spend too much. Or we use it politically. In many times, the political scenario uses the budget as a leverage uh, to propound the uh, programs of the president uh, or to start programs that are existing if the president doesn't uh, agree with where, where that is headed. So, so budget preparation and then budget execution. So uh, let's back this up. Tito Bon was a was the high-ranking officer of the Department of Budget and Management, and you're you're walking us through uh, prep and execution. But maybe the thing to call out here is this is the only the national budget, right? If you look at government all up, there's many sources of funds. Uh, the mayors and the LGUs will have a certain bucket, and then you have you have pork yeah. bath and you have this and that. Maybe before we we went, maybe before going right. to all of that. And so, if you, yeah. Let me correct. I'm not the highest. The secretary is the highest. Well, I'm so, just an uh, undersecretary. You are. You are. Makapagalitan ako. Pasensya na sec. No, but I guess uh, just to bring it back to Bon, you, the DBM obviously has jurisdiction over the national budget. But if you could walk us back, what are the different sources that the government pulls from to fund the projects apart from this national budget? Ah, okay. Well, ultimately, the national budget is funded by the government's money. And right. the government's money essentially is funded by taxpayers' money. Right. So that's the, that's the price. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, uh, don't quote me, then roughly 80% of all other collections are from income tax. Mm. Right? The, the second one, government owns or many government-owned corporations. Mm -hmm. And some of them make money. So they remit dividends to the government. The government uses it as a general fund. That's okay. another source. Uh the national government also issues uh, uh, attestation documents, uh, driver's license. Uh, these have fees. And mm -hmm. that fee also uh, pulls, goes up to the pool. And then lastly, if that's not enough, we borrow money. And we borrow money by uh, either borrowing directly from multilateral lending organizations like the World Bank, IMF, or issuing bonds where the private sector can buy, we use that money and then we pay them back after. So when this all comes together, the annual budget is a combination of all of that or is the annual budget just a combination of the national fund as it is collected from, from, the, from income taxation and various taxation? That, that's an excellent, excellent question. And I, it's not, in, in Singapore, that, that's why they don't have a deficit. They start with what have we collected last year. Mm -hmm. And the money that they collected last year is their budget for this year. And therefore, they don't need to borrow. Okay? The, Philippi the Philippines is rather different. Uh, we first start with our economic goals. So, for example, we want to grow our GDP 5% every year for the next seven years. And then they go back. If we want to grow this 5%, what kind of budget expenditure by government will bring us to this kind of growth. So, and then they say, oh, X number, which means that we have to spend on infrastructure, roads, bridges, fort, will give us 5%. So he said, so if that's the number, then they say, okay, realistically, how much is the, is the, 
is the uh, expected revenue from customs and BIR? How mm. much can we raise from other sources? Mm. And then if there's a gap, then they borrow. First, they decide, do we want to borrow a lot or little? What's our appetite? So if there's a big appetite because growth is more important than fiscal, fiscal position, then they will borrow. If fiscal position is more uh, important, then they taper down the economic uh, growth target. Now, so there's a group called... There's a group called DBCC, uh, the, uh, the Bu Budget Coordinating Council, uh, Departmental Budget Coordinating Council, or uh, Development Budget Coordinating Council. I think that's the name. I forgot the D. But this is composed of NEDA, uh, the Department of Finance, which includes BIR and the Treasury and the Customs and DBM. They come together, that committee comes together, they set inflation targets, they assume uh, uh, dollar dollar rates, and then they project the growth, and then from there they start crafting the national budget. So uh, I'll just put it together. First, th there's this there's this essentially planning exercise with all the groups you mentioned to include NEDA, to to include um, the the DBCC. <laughs> I'm I'm screwing this up. Yeah, and then yeah. the DBM yep. puts together that national budget, and then it goes to Congress yep. where it is voted into a law. Yep. After which it is implemented yep. and the I guess to not implement or to not follow is essentially a violation of the law. Now, at yes. what point does the president's agenda come in? You you mentioned about five minutes ago that depending on the priority projects or the or the priority uh, the pet projects of the of the president, certain things will get bigger budgets. But you also said that certain things can have their budgets starved. I mean, most notably the Commission on Human Rights, right? There, there was a big hullabaloo not too long ago. At what point does the president uh -huh. get a view of the budget and he says, yes, no, yes, no, higher, lower? Wh wh where does that happen? All right, very good. Uh, there are multiple touch points there. The first one, when they craft the budget, clearly they see it to put in the projects of what the president has said or his promises. So if he says we will be a peace and order presidency, then he would probably put more budgetary items and projects on the peace and order side than on others. So it starts there. The nuance of our budget is that it always emanates from the executive and then they give it to the Congress. So Congress cannot on their own create something because there are limits. For example, I don't think Congress can exceed the budget that the president asked for. They can only realign within. So if the president says 100 pesos lang tayo next year, Congress cannot make it 110 uh, uh, on its own. Uh -huh. So it the executive. So that's the first part where it can influence the expenditure. The second part, even if it's approved by Congress, there is this animal called the uh, release order, uh -huh. uh, which we commonly call SARO. Uh, there was a point in time when we were uh, fiscally crunched where we actually do not release all the money that was intended because we don't have money and we don't want to borrow. Mm -hmm. So in some aspects, the Department of Budget uh, re uh, does not release the SARO, the release order. That means that if you don't have a SARO, you cannot start the procurement and therefore the project is dead in the water. So that's, that's a mechanism of the president to ensure that uh, certain types of projects uh, even though approved by Congress, cannot be funded. Uh, let's go back into loans. Um, I, uh, obviously, without having to make this a 101 on treasury bills and bonds, where, do, mm -hmm. where, where does foreign aid come in, whether it's from Japan or, or the USAID or China? Uh, how does foreign money come in to the budget? Or am I, am I misplacing the, the flow of funds here? 
Ah, that's a good question. That's a rather difficult question to ask, uh, as manifested by our experience in Haiyan. Or, mm. uh, Haiyan? Undoy? Yeah, yeah, Undoy. Okay. So let, let us distinguish between foreign aid, uh, foreign loans, and foreign grants. Okay. Those, there are three buckets, and we have to nuance those three. Uh, foreign aid is really just an aid by a government. So walang bayad yan, tulong yan. So no strings attached. We, when, uh, in theory, wala dapat kasi aid yan. Eh. Uh, <laughs> most people think that when they say the U.S. pledged 100 million aid for victims of ganyan, they immediately think that this money is coming in somehow uh, to the government and the government will disperse it. That's not true. Oftentimes, those are in kind, not in cash. And many yeah. times, it's forced through non-government institutions already present in the ground, wherever the U.S. is comfortable. Correct. Generally, that's the Red Cross. Okay. So, for example, we give money to the Red Cross. The money doesn't go to the government. In fact, bulk of the aid goes to local government, not the national government, and uh, local gov- uh, local Philippine uh, local community organizations, mm-hmm. uh, civil society organizations. Uh, and the uh, Red Cross. And mm-hmm. Red Cross, unlike government, is subject to its own reporting rule. In fact, it's not mandated to report its money and cash flow as a foundation. So that's a separate one. So aid. Yung grant is really a grant, technical support, parang assistance. Uh, sa atin sa Microsoft, uh, it's really uh, parang... Uh, parang consultancy, ganun? Parang easy nga yung dating. Eh. Uh... It's, it's given as to either promote uh, certain types of national interest, etc. But essentially, it's it's a, parang a gift to a nation. But it Many times, the grant, intermediary to execute huh? the project. Uh, some of the grants are direct, uh, like educational learning grants. So for the U.S., for us to appreciate their way of government, they will provide some learning grants for some select, which I was a recipient of, for some select... Uh, senior officials to go and study in the U.S., that's a grant. Okay. Alternately, uh, they, they normally use grant agencies. So for the U.S., it's the USAID. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the OSAID. And then, uh, so grants are used uh, to either show friendship, to assist, or sometimes to just promote uh, uh, geopolitical interest. So that's grant. Loans are really just that, loans. So there was normally we borrow from the local banks, I, and if, I don't know if it's uh, evident to everyone. Most of our uh, loans to fund are local. They're not uh, international. So the government actually owns more domestic borrowing, has more domestic borrowing, my understanding, than international. So this comes from uh, World Bank, IMF, uh, Japan, uh, uh, ADB. So this, they provide uh, sovereign uh, loans. Alternately, we can go direct to certain countries that have excess money. These are called... Uh, country-to-country loans. So China, through its intermediary, will lend us a loan at 1% over five years, yang ganyan. So, yun yung tatlo. Now, Tito Bon, before I ask my next question, all of this, uh, obviously, it's nuanced. It's slightly convoluted. But I guess my first reaction is, why is this not transparent? Like, I, I would venture that only one out of a thousand people understands uh, the scenario, much like you've laid it out. Is this on purpose or... On purposely kept in the dark. Um, should we have all studied this somewhere? Um, am I just someone not paying attention? Why is it that this is not common knowledge of how the national government essentially pays for its operations? Uh, again, <laughs> again, it's a uh, the answer is everyone's guilty. It's a complex problem. Let's start with the obvious one: government. Uh, 
uh, you know, the less transparent these things are, the less accountability many uh, officials and civil servants, by the way, uh, are, and the more comfortable they are. So the more ambiguous, the more elbow room they can have, both for bad and for good. So that's the first one. Uh, in addition, the empowering environment, Congress, that really ultimately approves that budget, also wishes to some degree to sh uh, not show that the money that they're projecting really are just uh, uh, benefiting a certain group. So that's another one. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, this whole process is a failure of civil education. Mm. In fact, when you think about it, there are, there's no course in, in, in both the elementary and in the high school that talks about government funding. We mostly talk about Araling Panlipunan, which is really composed of our history and current events. Which is poorly taught, I might add. <laughs> Correct, but we don't have the governance uh, like, you know, that really just shows you, ultimately we learned there are three parts of government, but we don't even know once who has what power against whom. We all learned that from the TV when there is a, a Senate investigation. So that's a failure of the way we educate. And, and, and it also is reflected on the fact that we have a very low, in my opinion, sense of community or sense of uh, national community, the sense of the collective were weak. And I think part of that is that we don't learn the sense of the collective in areas where it should be collective, like the school. Because you don't learn the sense of collective in the house. You, you learn the sense of protecting each other in the house, which we bring outside. But institutions that teach us uh, the collective were weak. Unlike other nations, for example, Scandinavian countries, they have a deep sense of... Uh, of uh, of community so when there's an anti a green you know uh, there's there's uh, 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 participation on anti-plastic everyone pitches in if you notice also in korea when there was a recession many many years back everyone pitched in so there's that deep sense of uh, we don't have that partly because we do not share common historical collectivity and then other part, we don't reinforce it in school. Uh, and then, of course, the institutions, those who are elected, are won because of the status quo. And it's to their interest to preserve the status quo because they benefit from it. So you combine all of those, and then you have a sense that people just want to get by on the next fiscal cycle. You went extremely deep in about three minutes. And... I wish I could unpack all of that. So let's step back. The, a, a failure of civic education, yes. Uh, you, you called out culture, ours versus other countries. You, you also called out the, the preservation of the status quo. Um, let, me just, let me just bring that to something which you also mentioned earlier, which is Congress, essentially, who are the people we vote, right? The congressmen are voted. Mm -hmm. They're not appointed. I hope. <laughs> Congress, who we mm -hmm. vote, essentially have a lot of once this budget lands, because they more or less are the ones who voted into law. At the same time, yes. you just said here, Congress, well, not specifically, but generally people in power tend to want to preserve the status quo. If Correct. you could share a little bit of that point of view, when a congressman comes and he has this national budget in his or her hand and it says, whatever, we are increasing the wages of teachers or we're going to do build, build, build. Mm -hmm. He or she exercise a personal choice. Is, is the process like, oh, well, I promised my constituents, blah, 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 therefore I will. Or do you, is it more that they go more or less go with lockstep and there's kind of majority, minority uh, blocks? Like uh, when it lands with a congressman, how do they think about this budget? And do they think or do they just vote? Mm -hmm. 
Ah, okay. Uh, that's a good question. That's all an interlinked question. Yeah. Um, uh, let, let me just uh, let me just uh, run it through. Uh, hmm. Uh, what's the first one? Uh, how do they vote? Oh, how do they someone vote? told yeah. me a really wise person. A really wise person says the budget ultimately is not an economic exercise but a political exercise. So the budget is really a manifestation of the representation of the country. So all budgets are political by nature. Admittedly, when we elect congressmen, for example, they are expected, and it's not bad for them to ask money for their districts because that's their job, all right? Some transcend that and go for uh, broader societal uh, uh, issues on taxation, on the, uh, in the environment, on peace and order, etc. But most of them, by and large, uh, would just really want to secure something to bring back to their voters. So that's part of the gap. Uh, our electoral system, by at, at its essence, is paternalistic. Meaning, I elect you, Congressman. The expectation is you you need to show me something in return for that election. Not necessarily for me. I need to see roads. I need to see yeah. anti-fraud, yeah. etc. Which is not really the job of the Congressman. It's the job of the executive to do that. But that's how we built it. So that's that's the first one. So most Congressmen, for them to bring back something to their constituency will just agree with whoever crafts the budget because there's room for them now to uh, have a space to bring back some projects to their constituency. Uh... And, and, and this is important because this is precisely the reason why, and that's a political process. So if you're not part of the administration, out ka, wala ka makukuha. And therefore, yung kong, kawawang congressman na walang mabigay mapakita doon sa constituency niya, next election, hindi na maiwala. Tanggal na siya, yeah. Oh, eh, wala siya napakita, di, hindi na siya iboboto kasi paternal, paternalistic na yung 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 uh, extractive yung yung pa, power sharing. So, that is why an evidence of that is lahat ng congressman nasa admin ticket. Tama. Almost always. In fact, in Congress, there's really just two parties all the time. The president's party and, and the, the opposition party. Correct. So, there, there's really no true uh, party uh, system. So, having said that, so, uh, that's why nung panahon ni FVR Ramos, ginawa niya, wag na, na para hindi na tayo maghagel at napakahirap ng ginagawa natin, mag-allocate na lang ako sa inyo ng Country Development Fund, CDF, uh, which eventually became the PDAF. Which is where I wanted to take this. So, right. the, so you're saying... Away, yeah. Everyone gets an allocation. Yeah. So, allocation, allocation. This is really more for expediency purposes para wala nang haggling. So, ibig sabihin, ang programa ni, ng Pangulo, for example, uh, green uh, planting, environmental, ninitpick yan sa Congress hanggang makuha nila yung gusto nila. So, para hindi nyo nila pakialaman yung aking pet project, mag- meron na silang automatic allocation para happy na silang ibabalik sa constituents. Eventually, yung pidat na yun, naging tool for uh, for executive ano, uh, uh, ano ba? Uh, compliance. Para naging, so, ka- naging karot na siya. Oh, so much so naging stick siya. Uh, oh, naging stick, correct. Ay, mo ako, wala kang pidak, right? Uh, and that that persisted until nung panahon during my time, ang ginawa nila, ganito na lang automatic. Pag automatic bibigay. Yan yung uh, naging issue ng pidak hanggang kinwestyon na siya, hanggang natanggal na siya ng court. Well, one more thing to enter, pork barrel. Can you walk us through the, the pork barrel, I guess, scandal, and how that really came to be. Yung pork barrel, I think, is a label. 
uh, essentially, pork barrel is a quid pro quo. You vote for me, I give you something. And, you know, in truth, when you really think about it and we we take go down from our high and mighty horse, we do that all the time. We, we do that to our children. We do that to... So essentially, the pork barrel concept is that I will set aside money for you so that you will vote for my uh, pet project, mostly generally in the budget. So that pork barrel. Current, we don't call it pork barrel, of course. Uh, we call it the countrywide development fund do, do, during the Ramos administration. And then we called it the... Uh, Philippine Development Something Fund. So purportedly, there's an allocation for you to identify certain projects for the development of your constituency. So yun yung uh, pila. So to summarize, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. to summarize, after all of the preparation from the financial experts and government, once it starts getting into the house and all the negotiations happen, there will be a bucket of money discretionary based on all these negotiations for the congressman for the districts but ah. there is also a bucket of money for the national government to execute key projects is, is that correct did, did, did i understand how the money flows after all of this yes let, let me again sorry let me nuance a bit okay in the old in the old ano in the old uh, system uh, there is an allocation without any project so because you're a congressman you have in the budget a line item for development fund and then you identify after the budget has been approved. The, mm. court, the, the court has declared that unconstitutional. That's the one. Okay. There is another sense. It's also pork barrel, but in legally it's not. For example, in the crafting of the budget, I lobby for a particular expenditure. They put that in. Uh, you can consider that part of, part of uh, uh, pork barrel, but that's a legal pork barrel because that went through the process of approval. Okay, and the discretion to identify project does not happen after the budget has been enacted. It happens prior to the budget and goes through a deliberation. So, ang discretion is prior to the law. Yung old na unconstitutional, the discretion happens even after. So, para kang nag-allocate ng, ng kiti pondo, tapos pag-iisipan mo over the year kung paano may issue. Naging executive ngayon yung Congress. Yun yung unconstitutional. So, this is where it's tricky because a while ago, you made the uh, comment that you vote for a congressman or a congresswoman and that congressperson comes back to your district or your party list, party list with, a, with a set of funds to deliver on a promise. But the flip side is a lot of the money coming from this national budget goes to national government who are not voted for, right? Uh, the secretaries for the most part are appointed. And if they're appointed by the president, yeah. essentially you're voting for a president who, based on his or her platform or campaign promises, should use that national budget to forward the platform you, you voted for, whether it's peace and order, uh, no plastics, uh, God and country, right? Yeah. So essentially, this boils down to who delivers on the promises that they had come election time. Yep. But here's my question. Right. I don't get the sense that anyone at all campaigns based on promises and accountability, right? Yes. Yes. So if you look at it, and maybe it goes back to the civic duty and the civic sense, how does a normal person who pays taxes, how should they feel about this entire process and where do they get their accountability if they don't agree with how things are turning out with the government? Very good. Tama. Ultimately, we have a failure of accountability mechanisms. When you're in the private sector, you agree on some things, you don't finish it, you get fired. Yep. Right? In the government, 
the accountability structure is built in. So if the elected president doesn't deliver six years, it doesn't matter because there's no re-election. So after election, there's really no ultimate accountability, especially if you do not have a party. If there's a party, at least the party suffers, right, mm -hmm. in the next election. If you're a one-man show, like uh, the current president who really truly does not have a party, what is he supposed to be accountable for other than his personal moral beliefs of being accountable to the people? Yun yung accountability mechanism. So kulang. There are, of course, other accountability mechanisms. Uh, auditors, uh, COA auditors. They make a report, and then the courts will hold them responsible whether they followed uh, or not. So that's another accountability uh, mechanism. Dito, ang nag extract ng accountability, actually, and then it hooks into our culture, shaming. And the people doing it are media practitioners. So accountability mechanism natin, in truth, is really your stature on the TV and in the news. So ang tinatakbuhan ngayon ng tao, pag nangyayang accountability, si Ramon Tulfo. And... So and there's no formal relationship between the the mass media and the structures of accountability. So that's one thing we need to do. We need to build an institution with strong accountability mechanisms and strong transparency mechanisms. But in addition to that, let's go upstream. As our people, uh, marami sa atin bibenta yung boto tapos papangit ang presidente or kumon nagtataka bakit pangit ang presidente. Tatanong mo, bumoto ka ba hindi? Oy, wag kang mag wala kang right complain. Yung isa naman, binenta mo ba yung boto mo? Opo, kasi minsan-minsan lang namin nakikita si congressman. Wala kang right to complain kasi binenta mo yung boto mo. Eh. So, that ultimately, this boils down not to the politician, but to the people who vote the politician. So, if you don't take your, your suffrage rights very seriously by judiciously uh, being uh, dis, uh, dis discerning about your vote, eh, yan ang makukuha mo. It is a byproduct downstream of an action taken during election. Now, I'll, I'll try to relate. We, we've been spending the better part of maybe a half hour talking about the national budget, and obviously there's many spokes that come from that hub. I'll try to relate that to your, your opening project. You described the national ID project. Now, when you look at something which is the intersection really of you know, a developing country, technology, civil service, better life, etc., etc. How does a project like that fall in the national budget? The, I, the mere fact that it hasn't been executed, is that because they never budgeted for it? Or there's always been budget for it, but the time has passed, so that money went away? Or, or maybe you should tell us, is that happening now? Like, like how, how is the government spending on a national initiative such as the ID? Um, that's not politically mm -hmm. charged, right? So how is the government spending on a national initiative such as that? Okay, first, there has to be an accountable legal entity. So mostly departments or agencies. So you, they, the law or the executive passes that on. That agency now figures it out, parang sa atin, comes up with a bomb bill of material mm -hmm. and an implementation plan. That plan now will have to have dollars and cents that then gets transmitted to DBM round about the first quarter of the uh, previous fiscal year, uh, between January to March. They deliberate on it. They justify it to DBM that they, the numbers are correct, that they know what they're doing, and there is legal mandate to pursue that. Uh, and then DBM gets that in, collects everything, compares it to the total available funds, and then trims it accordingly. And then once they get that balance, they transmit it to Congress, right? Uh, this is around SONA time, July, they transmit uh -huh. the budget. And then Congress deliberates, initially the House deliberates on it for two to three months, continuously, several thousands of lines. 
and then uh, so the the committee on uh, finance or the committee on budget deliberates brings it to the plenary the plenary calls all the agencies one by one to explain their budget and then it gets approved and then it goes to the senate the senate then runs through the same process by and large around november or december if god willing they're finished they come up with the senate version which likely is different from the house version then they create a third group called the bicam bicameral conference committee they reconcile both bills they print it they bring it to the president Hopefully before December, the president looks at it. He then has a decision to veto line item, to veto total, uh, and then signs the budget, and then it starts the cycle January. By the time the budget gets approved by the president, the whole cycle of preparing for the next budget cycle already starts January. So that's how it's done. We're almost at 40 minutes, and I, I just want to reflect on what you've been talking about. What I'm getting here is that the budget, as, as it allows the government to execute or not execute is largely an exercise in power and influence. Obviously, the president has his circle of influence. The congressmen negotiate with one another and potentially the president. Uh, in terms of the national agenda, maybe NEDA has this influence, BOC has this influence, BIR. It, mm -hmm. it seems like there are a lot of pockets of power. And... At the same time, you're saying the accountability of putting that pocket or pockets of power are really on the voters who themselves yep. aren't necessarily well-educated on how their vote ties into all of this. Now, Correct. here's That's my question. Right. There is a large set of young and well-informed people, I guess mostly through social media, Twitter, Instagram. And when they see the scandal, and here we are, and we're now in PhilHealth, we're now in scandal, the, the bombastic headline is $150 billion. Mm -hmm. so that didn't happen overnight, clearly. Um, that passed through uh -huh. the process that you just described, obviously, right? I mean, yeah. PhilHealth doesn't have a magic snap to make things happen. And now people are upset and angry, right? So as we, as we close this first podcast, because we have to come bring you back for parts two, three, and four after the national budget, what is your guidance, the, much in the same way you talked to me in the pantry in the office, how would you tell a young person who's upset and trying to understand how should we deal with, these, with, with, with this news? What actions can we take potentially if this is something which matters to us? And how can we inform other people of this new knowledge? All right. Uh, you, you struck a chord, power and influence. But you frame it in such a sense that that power and influence are all political and from the president. There is that component of power and influence, societal power and influence. That means that collectively everyone come together. And recently, because we can spread that uh, uh, aspiration uh, more widely and more quickly, that, that is power and influence. So uh, young individuals need to exercise and assert that power. And that power needs to be collective. It cannot just be one person ranting. Uh, so before, there was this uh, other pillar called mass media, uh, the, the media group that helps us... Uh, uh, voice out the, the common uh, now with the, the common sentiment. Now with the, this one, it needs to be voiced out. If they're not happy, it needs to be voiced out. Preferably in a more constructive manner to allow people, because you know when you're just pointing out the problem, you're whining. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to be, uh, ideally be more constructive, but just providing feedback through the general uh, available uh, platforms, uh, social network. Uh, Twitter, uh, uh, and make it known. And secondly, they also need to learn like what you're doing. Uh, 
no one no one wakes up in the morning knowing everything and this is like a small muscle build up all the time so just like our in our culture the 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 growth mindset the desire to learn something new today that you did not know yesterday that has to be an imperative in our society uh uh and also compliance if we want to hold our leaders accountable we also need to hold ourselves accountable to the same standards uh, and it's called witnessing so if we hold the, everyone to be honest and when we sell our votes anyway then it breaks the whole quality chain of accountability immediately so we need to exercise that so i the formula has been told many many times uh, be informed be involved okay be heard and organize those things in fact so much so that in the early 70s or start, oh, in the 70s or late 60s, workers were alienated by the people who employed them. So they organized themselves and then it became the labor unions, which brought up good things for the labor union and bad things overall in the economy. But first they organized themselves. So you, they have to be involved and participate in civic groups and civic activities. They can't just stay in the house doing computers. If they do that, they should just create virtual civic groups and participate like what you're doing. Sorry about that. Oh, it's cuckoo clock time. Uh, it's it's late. Uh, so there. So be involved, be informed, uh, and then participate. Hold people accountable to the right standards. Tito Bond, I, I say this to every guest because I just really love talking to the people who give me the time. We we spent this podcast talking about the national budget and its intricacies. I really hope you come back to at least talk to the how many people listen to this podcast because you're right. There's a lot of nuance. It's it's not as simple as it looks, and eventually all of us are involved, and all of us have a direct role to play, right? So I'm I'm gonna just put a pin in this and say thank you for explaining to us the many nuances of the national budget as it has been your experience. Before I let you go, is there any last word or shout out or plug that you want to make? Uh, well, you know, uh, again, as a change agent, uh, there is an opportunity given to us now by whatever is happening now globally, locally, uh, even in a micro level, there's an opportunity for us for change. And we should seize this moment to actually do some good change in us. The way we eat, the way we live, the way we engage our government, the way we demand things from our government. Uh, if you don't do that, do not expect someone else to, to do that. So uh, I think it's really important. Kama yung title mo, Woke Tito. Woke everyone. <laughs> and then ultimately, and then uh, as corollary to that also, and I think this is our societal gap. We've never really been a nation, as a nation, come together because uh, we only became a nation because we were invaded by foreigners and we became a nation. So wala tayong deep roots on, a, on, 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 on being deeply connected as a community, not just as government, not just as a nationality, but as a community. If that's the case and they should just accept it to be so, then we should start creating activities that will build communities and build better communities. Manifestation of that is how we treat public places, parks. Uh, if, we, if we don't have a deep sense of, uh, of community, our parks are dirty. Our streets are dirty. If we have a deep sense of community, immediately you can sense that the parks are clean, the streets are clean, the garbage are collected. So I think, and the election, people we elect is manifested as well this has been part one of i hope a hundred of your mini pocket lessons thank you very much tito bon for giving me your time i really miss you i wish we can all see each other in the pantry sometime soon <laughs> yep yep free food <laughs> free food free coffee forever Alrighty. thank you very much and we'll all see right. you soon
Thank you, Enzo. Have a nice day.